Welcome to episode two of the Anglo-Omani Society podcast. Today we are joined by Yemen expert Helen Lackner in conversation with our very own Nick Smith. A huge welcome to Helen Lackner. Helen is one of the preeminent UK scholars on Yemen and has spent the last four decades researching the country. She is currently Associate Researcher at the School of Oriental and African Studies and a visiting fellow of the European Council on Foreign Relations. She's also the editor of the Journal of the British Yemeni Society and a regular contributor to both Oxford Analytica and Open Democracy. Her publications include Yemen in Crisis, Autocracy, Neoliberalism and the Disintegration of a State and Why Yemen Matters, a Society in Transition, which she edited. Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. So, Helen, the first question I wanted to ask you um, was that Yemen is in the midst of a civil war since, since 2015. It's uh, widely characterised as a failed state. It's currently undergoing one of the world's worst humanitarian crises, with a famine described as the worst famine in the world in 100 years by the UN. As someone engaged in current affairs, but by no means an expert on the region, it feels like the recent history of Yemen has been one of internal strife, instability and political division. Uh, is this a fair take? Yes, I think at the, you know, I think yeah, it is fair, a fair summary of the situation. I mean, there's been, you know, very considerable series of conflicts in Yemen, internal and throughout, for for the last half century. So, the current conflict is very definitely far worse than all the earlier ones, and far more lasting than all the earlier ones. But um, but yes, I think. Uh, it's a, fair, it's a fair description, unfortunately. Yeah. So, but I think it is. And if we, if we go a bit further back than, than the current civil war, um, when we look at the, the history of Yemen, um, can we trace the nexus of, of some of the issues today to, to the Zaydi Imamate and, and, and the subsequent division of the country by, by the Ottoman and, and British empires in the early, early 20th century? I think only to a limited extent. I okay. think the current nature of the problems is really a political struggle for power. Right. Um, and yes, the Houthi movement uh, claim that they the inheritance, and uh, but they are Houthis, and then I mean they are Zaydis. Um, Houthis are Zaydis, but not all Zaydis are Houthis. So I think it would be a mistake to reduce this to a sectarian issue between Zaydis and non-Zaydis in the country. Um, and I think if you go back to looking at the British period or other aspects, and the British period, of course, in the south, in Aden, which is not the area where the, which used to be the Yemen Arab Republic or previously the Emirate, um, you do have a, a different situation. I think you really need to look more at the last 30 years since unification to understand at least the dynamics of the struggle between the Houthis and uh, anti-Houthis, as one calls them now, rather than looking back into earlier stages. If you want to look at earlier stages, that is important to understand the problems in the South, which is a separate issue. Connected, but separate. Okay. So, the, and a lot of our um, audience said today that when, when they think of Yemen, they very much think of, uh, of a North Yemen and, and a South Yemen. Um, is that still the consensus within Yemen itself, or do Yemenis tend to view Yemen as, as united? I think it depends who you're speaking to. I mean, a lot of Yemenis see Yemen as a single country, but certainly the Southern Separatist Movement, uh, which is, you know, has, has a number of institutions or groups, um, do have a different vision, and they certainly see them as two separate states, 
I think if you look at the situation culturally, you know, I think there is an entity that I would call a Yemeni entity, a mm-hmm. uh, Yemeni cultural national entity. Uh, that is also, you have to accept that there's also differences within there. I mean, a Yemeni from Saada has certain different cultural characteristics from a Yemeni from Haramut or Al-Mahra. But uh, to me, there's a certain Yemeni entity which exists throughout Yemen, which you know, only barely, if at all, crosses the borders into Oman or Saudi Arabia. Right. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's not a simple question, but no. I think that's, you know, without going into very con- com- complex details, is roughly what I would say. So, it is a, within Yemen, is a, a widely agreed consensus on, on what defines kind of Yemeni nationhood or, or nationality? I'm not sure that if you ask a Yemeni in Yemen that he or she would be able to answer that question in a straightforward manner. Something intangible. But uh, if you are outside of Yemen, there's a very clear difference between a Yemeni and a Saudi or a Yemeni and an Omani. Okay. You know, they'll have different characteristics and different, uh, to some extent, forms of behavior, regardless of the differences within Yemen. Absolutely. So I think, you know, yeah, I think that's really what I would say. Interesting. And so when we talk about um, South Yemen um, and the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, it was the only country in the Arabian Peninsula in which, in which communism took hold. So I think my first question would be, why did this happen? And um, secondly, um, as with the anglo Omani society, uh, how is this connected with, uh, with the Dofar rebellion in Oman um, and the subsequent military campaign, which became such a defining period of um, His Majesty Sultan Qaboos' early reign? I think the important thing to remember, you know, if people tend to forget, the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen existed from 1967 until 1990. So it was there, it was not there either before or after these two dates. Yes. And indeed, the struggle in Dafar and, you know, to some extent beyond that in Oman was between 1965 and 1975. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a very limited period. Mm-hmm. And I think, and again, if you... You know, the Dofar struggle against the Sultan, against Sultan Said bin Taimur happened, started its first five years. In fact, the first half of the ten years it lasted was, again, was prior to the arrival of Sultan yeah. Qaboos. So, you know, we have two very different phases in that struggle from the point of view of who was ruling Oman at that time. And you also have different phases in that struggle when you're looking at both the relationship with Yemen and internal developments within the revolutionary movement. Because with Yemen, as we just said, the PDRY didn't exist until 1967, so it was only for the next few years that it was in a position to help the revolutionaries. And at the same time, within the movement itself, it was influenced to some extent from local dynamics, but also from international dynamics with respect to the complex struggle between the Soviet Union and China at that time and the you know, internal problems within the, the socialist world. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. So, so if we if we come back to, to modern day Yemen and uh, and the current civil war since since 2015, could you just give us a, a brief overview of, of why it all started? Kind of who were the key players and and why is it often regarded as a as a proxy war by outside powers? And when you just spoke about South Yemen, um, we talked about the infiltration of, of Soviet ideology. Has that got any parallels in terms of Yemen? The, the war as a, as a proxy with with what's going on now? Mm. 
That's a lot of questions. <laughs> There's a lot of questions. One, maybe we, <laughs> can, uh, we can sort of Definitely. split them up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why did the war start? The war basically was the outcome of a number of political, economic and social difficulties that arose. As we just said, Yemen was united in 1990 and it was rapidly taken over entirely by the ruling mechanism of Ali Abdullah Saleh, which he had already implemented since 1978 in what was then the Yemen Arab Republic. And this was a very uh, a patronage system that was very much a personal rule aided by his closest acolytes and based on a simple patronage system. You often hear it described as a kleptocracy. Yeah, I've described it as an autocracy, but I think you know, that's a slightly different aspect. I think at the moment, I would, when we're talking about patronage, I'm trying to talk about the reason why um, it had a lot of support. You know, if you were living in a village in Yemen, anywhere, you actually wanted Ali Abdullah Saleh to come and visit because he would okay. turn up with bags full of money, right. and he would, which would be distributed, and most people would likely to get some outcome from it. And we, who would also, you know, if he decided you're going to have your school or your health center or your road, it would happen. So in that sense, he was popular. And in that sense, there, there are certain areas where he is still popular. But it was a system which was completely erratic in mm -hmm. the sense that, you know, if he turned up, you got something. If you happened to be somewhere where he doesn't turn up, you didn't get right, anything. Okay. So there wasn't, you know, much logic to that. I mean, the autocracy element was really also very much you know, the, person, the personal rule, the rule of the group, and also the overall mechanism which focused on, you know, on a small minority gaining most of benefits mm -hmm. at the expense of society as a whole. Right. Whether in the North or the South. So I think that that's, you know, one element of, of the issue. Uh, you had a political paralysis because Ali Abdullah Saleh, despite you know, what was more democratic than anywhere else in the peninsula. You had a multi-party democracy, you had other parties represented in the parliament, you had different views, but ultimately, you know, Ali Abdel Saleh was okay. He was mm -hmm. the one who made the decisions. So you didn't have, you know, Tunisia, you didn't have 99.8% winning at elections. Yes. You know, you got something much more realistic, okay. but it was always Ali Abdel Saleh's party who won. Right, yes. And that was organized. So you you know you had a and you had a political paralysis because in 2009 he was trying to change the constitution so that he'd be allowed to stand one more time the plan was to eventually get his son to inherit the presidency you know very much the Syrian model or mm -hmm. what was originally considered also as the Libyan model and so that was very unpopular with the other parties so you had a political paralysis so you had the political paralysis, paralysis, you had the economic situation, which basically was a significant deterioration in living conditions for the majority of the people, because oil income was going down, oil production, which was already low by any Gulf standards, you know, as, as I said earlier, it rose to 400,000 barrels a day uh, at the peak production. Mm -hmm. By the time we're talking about the late 2000s, we're talking about 200,000 barrels a day. You know, which is not, I mean, it's something, but it's nowhere near like the millions we're talking about. And you had a population similar to that in Saudi Arabia. So the, the potential for patronage was seriously deteriorated. So had this combination of social, political, and economic deterioration, which, was, which led to the uprisings in 2011. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And the uprisings in 2011 in Yemen had characteristics which were really far beyond those of many other countries in the sense that it happened, they happened everywhere in the country. You know, even the capitals of governorates, some of which are really little more than villages, okay, well. you know, had demonstrations, had action. And you, had the, you then had the transition set up or under the name of the Gulf Cooperation Council Agreement, which was supposed to last two years, which was supposed to bring in fundamental reforms to the system and to expel or get rid of the Ali Abdallah Saleh clique. Mm -hmm. But in reality what happened is one Ali Abdallah Saleh was so strong that he was not, you know, he was not excluded. He had to give up the presidency, yeah. yes. But he remained pre head of his party, which right. was the biggest political institution in the country. And therefore, during the transition and through the whole transition process, he had the ability to undermine the attempt to turn up to turn this transition, which eventually led to the Houthi uprising in, or to the Houthi takeover in 2014, 2015. And just for those who don't realize this, Ali Abdallah Saleh had been having six wars against the Houthis, I repeat, against the Houthis, between 2004 and 2010. And then you had this new alliance, and basically because they didn't like the direction in which the transitional government was going, they basically jointly um, took over, and the war started basically at the end of this transition, give or take a few months of this official transition. So it wasn't so much as a kind of straw that broke the camel's back, it was just a, a disintegration over a sustained period of time, which, which led to... Yeah, I mean, it was a, a disintegration, of, but eventually there is the straw that yeah. broke the camel's back. So, you know, it's, a com it's, it's, it's the situation that built up, etc., and then you suddenly get the moment of right. something. I mean, in, in that particular instant, the, mo the moment that did it was the return of, or the supposed, supposed promulgation or whatever of what intended to be a new constitution. Mm -hmm. And that was the excuse for the Houthis to say, sorry, this is it, we're, we're not having this. And so that, you know, that was, I suppose you could say, the trigger moment. The trigger moment, yeah, absolutely. But, um, but the fundamental issues had been building up for, you know, well over a decade. Interesting. Um, that's really fascinating. And when we talk about um, proxy war, uh, can you just explain a, a bit more about that and a regional uh, Yeah, regional I mean, what's happened in 2015 is that once the Houthis had taken over Sana'a and the official in transitional re regime, or particularly the president, um, escaped to Aden, and, was, and the Houthis and the Saleh group were about to basically defeat him, mm -hmm. expel him from Aden. He appealed to the Saudis to come and help. And so that's when you had the coalition uh, developed by the Saudis with primarily the Emiratis and about nine other states, but the others really didn't have much of a say in mm -hmm. the matter, to bring back the Hadi, at that time, Hadi regime back into power. So you had, you know, you had that attempt at that point and that really was the beginning of a war. Now the extent to which you can call it a proxy war, I think, um, personally I don't really think it's a proxy war. I think it's really a situation where you had, you know, the, the Houthis and the Houthi Saleh and then after 2017 or from starting 2018 the Houthi uh, war versus the coalition and the coalition, yes, it's the Yemeni 
official recognized, internationally recognized government fighting the Houthis, but with the help of the coalition. Of so it's not, you know, people, when people talk about a proxy war, they're really thinking about Iran and the involvement of Iran mm -hmm. on behalf of the Houthis. Absolutely. And I think this is, you know, one needs to look at that into some detail because you know, there's definitely, as I think we all know, a serious problem between the Saudis and the Iranians. Yes. Uh, but to what extent Yemen is part of this, it is part of this, but only to a much more, very much more limited extent. It's not, it's not the focus. So it's not as if when the Saudis are fighting the Houthis that they're fighting the Iranians, because the Houthis are not Iranian servants no. or Iranian, even Iranian proxies. The so Houthis, do you think that tends to be overplayed in, in, in Western I think media? that's very much overplayed. Okay. I mean, I think, number one, the, the Iranian involvement has increased since the war started. It was really barely in existence in 2015, 2016. It's increased over the period of time. And yes, indeed, I mean, for the Iranians, you know, the Yemen situation is a really cheap win. Yes. Compared to compared to Syria, compared to Iraq, compared to anywhere else, you know, Yemen is cheap. What do they have to do to get the, the Houthis? Love them. I mean, they mm -hmm. don't love them, but they are pretty positive about them ideologically. Even though there's a very big difference sectarian sectarianly <laughs> uh, like between <laughs> Zaydis and uh, and Twelver Shias. But you know, the, the the Houthis, you know, like the Iranian regime. They are happy with it. They're, in a way, they are following some of its ideological positions in the sense of wanting, you know, basically wanting a theocracy okay. in the country. Right. So there is that positive element. Um, the Iranians basically hand over some fuel, which is, you know, financially, it's not a major contribution. They help with some technical, fancy technology, fancy military technology. But basically, thanks to that rather limited involvement, they are causing a lot of inconvenience and hassle to the Saudis, mm -hmm. whom they really want to, you know, they really are confronting. Mm -hmm. So in, in that sense, you can say there's a connection. But the point that really is important to understand is that the Houthis would continue and will do what they want to do, regardless of what the Iranians say or do or want. So in that sense, you can't say they're a proxy. Right, okay. Because it's not as if, the, you know, if uh, Khamenei sort of makes a phone call to Abdul Malik al-Houthi and tells him, do this, and Abdul Malik doesn't want to do it, he won't do it. Right. Or right. similarly, if he tells him, don't do this, and Abdul Malik wants to do it, he will do it. Yes, okay. So they're not taking orders from the no. Iranians. Okay, oh, that's really interesting, okay. So if the Iranians would withdraw any involvement tomorrow, it would still continue in its current yes. form. Yes, I mean, the, if the Iranian involvement, and unfortunately, to a large extent, if the Saudi involvement ended tomorrow, you would still have the Yemen civil war. Yes. You would still have the conflict. So, you know, they are, they are relevant, of course, they're extremely relevant, uh, where the Saudis are more relevant, I would say, than mm -hmm. the Iranians. But they are, they are not dictating. Their removal from the scene would not end the struggle. Okay, okay, that's really interesting. And if we, um, if we kind of steer back towards, towards Oman, obviously Oman has stayed clear of any direct involvement in, in a conflict and it, and it sought to play a, a more discreet and, and, and useful role as a, as a peace broker. How do you assess this and, and any impact? I think Oman has played an extremely useful role and continues to try to play an extremely useful role. I mean, number one, Oman is the one GCC country that did not join the anti-Houthi coalition. Mm -hmm. 
So that gave them already an advantage in terms of acting as a facilitator or a mediator. But I think very importantly, you know, it also demonstrated that this isn't a GCC versus the Yemenis operation. Yes. I mean, the, it, you know, it's, it's demonstrated again because the Omanis on previous occasions in other conflicts have demonstrated their independence. But it's been, I think that's been a very important element um, and what it has allowed them and made it possible for them to facilitate dialogue because the Houthis are limited to northern Yemen. Um, the Sana'a airport has been closed since the summer of 2016, which means that you know, for if, if the British government or the French government or anyone wishes to talk to the Houthis, it's not easy. But the Houthis now have a permanent delegation. The head of their negotiating team is sitting in Muscat on a, as far as I know, permanent basis for at least two or three years. You know, there is a whole team of Houthis who sit in, in, in Muscat. And this means that, you know, if people wish to talk to the Houthis, and to some extent most states do, they can easily reach them by turning up in Muscat. Which is, so this is a, a, a facilitating role, which I think is extremely important and a significant contribution towards what we hope one day will be a solution to this problem. So I think that that's, you know, that's a very important role they're doing. They're also, you know, facilitating travel for many Yemenis in and out of, uh, in and out of Yemen, because again, with Sana'a airport being closed, the only operational airports are Aden and Seyun, which are both in the, what used to be the south, I mean, it's still technically the South, yeah. geographically, but politically. And it is also, particularly Aden is an area where the Southern separatists are very active and make life extremely unpleasant for people from the North. Right. You know, whom they, there's a sort of, to me, there's a level of, um, of hostility between mm -hmm. Southerners and Northerners, which is a much more important and fundamental social issue than the question of sectarianism in Yemen. Okay, So traveling via, through the South, via Oman, is one of the ways in which Yemenis can get out of Yemen. Yemen. Okay. And there's not that many of these yeah. ways. Yeah, um, really interesting. And, and so, I mean, do you hold any short-term hope for, for the end of hostilities and, and really the beginning of, a, of an era of, of peace and reconstruction, or, or is there really no end in sight at the moment? Unfortunately, I don't. I mean, what I find particularly depressing is that I don't think I've spoken to or listened to a single Yemeni or other expert on the region in the last 12 months, last two years, who has seen any prospects of an end to this. You know, we don't, I mean, the situation seems to be very intractable. There's an absolute lack of willing to compromise on the part of both the Houthis and the so-called internationally recognized government. Mm -hmm. I think it's very clear to me um, that the Saudis would like an end to this. It's an expensive operation and it's not really, you know, providing any benefit. Mm -hmm. So they would like to see an end to it. I mean, the Emiratis have officially withdrawn, uh, though, you know, they're still there in, in certain specific locations in small numbers, but certain strategic positions that they've maintained. So the, the Saudis clearly, you know, want to get out. So I think the international element is getting smaller or, you know, less important. And it certainly looked towards the end of last year as if things were going to reach some kind of end, whether formally or informally. I mean, I had not envisaged necessarily that there would be an agreement, but what I had envisaged was that the thing would just fizzle out in a way. 
why, on the grounds that you know signing an agreement means you have to make certain statements and yes. this wasn't going to happen. But the recent offensives that have happened from the Houthis have clearly demonstrated that these hopes were very premature. Mm. And so you have, you know, you still have a major, major set of issues. And then you have the whole side issues of the South, but I'm not sure that you want to go into that. <laughs> but that's another whole you know, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and that, um, that's been a, a phenomenal insight into, into Yemen and, and your, your expertise and, and the sheer decades you spent in the region. It, it, we're incredibly grateful to, to, um, to have you here with us and, and to have so eloquently um, really taken us back through the recent history of Yemen and, and brought us up to the modern day and, and really dug deep into, into what those issues are. So thank you very much. Um, it's been a real privilege having you here. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity and I think I'd just like to end by saying what I believe millions of Yemenis are thinking and saying daily that we do wish there was a solution and an end to this fighting, even if we don't envisage it. This is what the Yemeni people want, even if it's not what their leaders are doing anything to achieve. Absolutely. Thank you. We can hear it. Thank you, Helen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to stay tuned for more Anglo-Omani Society talks. Please also head to our website, www.ao-soc.org, for more information about what we do. Look forward to having you on the next one.